Welcome back to the G3 Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Bice, and today we're going to be discussing the issue of biblical ecclesiology. I'm thrilled to be joined by two friends, Virgil Walker, who is the Executive Director of Operations for G3 Ministries, and also my friend Conrad Mbewe, who serves as pastor of the Kabwata Baptist Church in Zambia. Welcome to the G3 Podcast, brothers. Hey, thanks so much. Glad to be here, Josh. Thanks. Thanks a lot, Josh. Well, as we dive into this conversation today, I want to begin by discussing the issue, specifically, Conrad, here in the United States. We have this idea of rugged individualism, this idea that we don't really need a local church. We can be a Christian without the church. We can worship God apart from the church. And so help us walk through uh, the New Testament. Help us to understand what we see as far as the nature and the functionality of a local church in the New Testament. So in other words, do we see a formal membership that's mandated biblically? Do we see a functioning formal church membership in the early church? And so help us understand what that looks like and why we should uh, put a, a serious priority, if you will, upon church membership in our present culture. Uh, yes. Uh, I think it's, it's pretty obvious if you, first of all, just think in terms of the parallels that uh, the Bible gives to uh, the Christian church. Uh, one is that of a family, and um, um, the phrase in fact, that is used is, is the household of God. And uh, the, the Apostle Paul, for instance, said to Timothy in First uh, Timothy and chapter 3, that uh, that was the basis on which he was writing to Timothy um, so that he can know how people ought to behave um, within that context. Now, that's a very good parallel to the family. And like any home, you know who belongs to the home and who doesn't. You know who the visitors are and who um, belong to the activities that must take place in the context of the household, uh, household chores, both within the house and also uh, on the outside. Uh, but even when you go through the book of Acts, for instance, you can't miss the fact that a lot of what takes place there or is spoken of in, uh, in, that pa- in those passages in the book of Acts would be rather meaningless if there wasn't uh, a sense of these belong to us and these do not. Um, the choosing of leaders, for instance, in um, we have it in, in Acts chapter 1, when Judas is being replaced. Uh, the Bible speaks very clearly about who were those that participated in such an activity. Um, when in chapter 2 of uh, Acts, we are told about people being converted The phrase that is used is that God is adding to their number uh, those who are being saved. And again, it's obviously not simply uh, the people that are in attendance, because as you know, um, number one, you always have a lot of other people attending. But number two, that's always fluctuating. Some who come for a week or two just don't come. And then you have another bunch altogether. Uh, So there must clearly be individuals that have fulfilled those conditions of uh, uh, professing faith, being baptized, 
and consequently being added uh, to the the number. Um, when it came to the choice of uh, the seven, the the first um, deacons again, you can't miss the fact that it was an in-house uh, activity that was being processed and so forth. I can add the issue of uh, church discipline uh, in First um, Corinthians that again speaks in terms of when you come together, this is the way you are to handle um, the person who has sinned and so forth. And the person is to be removed from among you. Um, so again, it's not simply being removed from attending a meeting because a lot of unbelievers attend. Uh, it is primarily being removed from actual membership of the church. It's so what what you do with respect to uh, removing somebody from a household or from an institution who is um, breaking the the rules, the laws uh, of that institution. So membership seems to to simply underlie what is being spoken of in the scriptures, and that's why they make sense. That's what I would say. There's genuine accountability taking place there. Well, absolutely. As we look at the New Testament and we see the family structure, if you will, of the church and how the the church function together, we see Jesus's statement to the early believers that they were to stay in Jerusalem, that they were not to depart from the city until they received the Comforter, until the Holy Spirit had come upon them. And then uh, the Bible tells us that they were in the upper room. There were 120 of them. The Scripture specifies a number. And then when the Holy Spirit came upon them, they went out into the streets and they started spreading the gospel and preaching the good news. And it was at that point that Peter preaches this famous sermon at Pentecost, and we see the Bible specifies a number, that there were 3,000 that believed, and then they were baptized. And then you keep turning the pages there in Acts, and you see Peter preaches another sermon at Solomon's portico, and some 5,000 believed. And so you're, you're seeing the early church grow drastically, but you're seeing specific numbers 120, then 3,000, and then 5,000 more. And soon you go from 120 to some 20,000, if you count the wives and the children uh, of the of the early church. And so you see that there was a need for organization. And then again, there was some controversy with the widows who were being neglected. And so you see deacons who are appointed for the purpose of caring for the practical needs of the church. And so if there were widows who were being uh, neglected, then we have to understand that there was a registry in, uh, you know, in place, and this registry would have specified the widows that were to be cared for and the widows that were not to be cared for in the general community. And so uh, the, the church was seen as a, a, a different group than just the normal community in which they lived. And so the the numbers are indicative of a formal membership. Virgil, what do you think as you read the New Testament, as you look at these issues, uh, what do you see as well as far as the idea of a functional church membership? I, I absolutely do. I mean, I, 
there, there's a reason for the number. There's a reason that that these folks are being uh, accounted for in some way, shape, or form, so that they could be connected to a part of a of a larger body. Uh, I, I'm curious, uh, Brother Conrad, what what and this is something that Josh alluded to earlier. Why is it, do you think, that there is this cavalier nature about church membership? What, what's, at, what's at the heart of that? And, and maybe that's not the case where you are, but that is absolutely the case where we are. People uh, will, will attend a church for a decade or more uh, and never and never really announce in any kind of way or, or participate in any formalized way uh, as, a part of, as a part of a body. Uh, it, it's been amazing to me I've, at, at church, you know, the church that, uh, that that I attended here in Omaha. We'd have people who would, who were there for, you know, eight years, ten years, and uh, when we wanted to submit them for uh, for for an office for for perhaps a a deacon or or the like, we found out they weren't they were not even on the rolls as as members. And so, what do you think plays into that? Is there something culturally speaking that that plays into that kind of a thought process? Yes, I, I honestly think that there is a um, a way in which the an average person in the West and especially in America tends to think about their freedoms and liberties that those of us who are in Africa don't really include in our social lives. Um, there's an almost overemphasis on private. This is my private life. Um, I, I have a right to do what I want to do. Whereas in an African context, there's a lot more of uh, a, a sense of community. It is because we are, that's why I am kind of thinking. And, and therefore, there's, there's a greater sense of um, not just belonging, but wanting to belong, wanting to be identified um, with uh, uh, this body and so forth. So quite apart from the biblical arguments that we've sought to give here, there is an advantage that's already in place because of the, the culture in which we live. We, we even speak about the extended family, which is still very, very real. And that's really speaking about the wider family to which we, we belong. And, and the real sense of accountability to the wider family too. I mean, our, our young people don't just get engaged with, with each other and just announce to the rest of the family, the wider family that is. Uh, there, there is the the sense you belong, so I can't just put a ring on your finger, without first of all processing the wider family to which you belong. And once I'm accepted in that wider family, then I can put a ring on your finger. Um, so yes, there's some cultural element that, thankfully, positively feeds into what we have, and then negatively feeds into the Western context. Brothers, as we read the New Testament, we see two specific offices for the church. We see the office of deacon, which is a service office, and we see the office of elder, which is the oversight office, the, the leadership office, which is specifically speaking, leading in the area of biblical theology, feeding the flock of God, preaching and teaching the word of God, and then leading the people according to God's word. And so, Conrad, specifically, 
speaking about these issues, in your book, Foundations for the Flock, you make a specific statement on page 40 where you say that eldership is never mentioned in the singular in the New Testament. So help us understand, help us unpack what that means. Should we always be pursuing in the local church a plurality of deacons and also a plurality of elders who are leading? Yes, um, I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, in the book that I've written, which really grew out of the seminar that I was handling at our church and then at a number of other churches as we were reforming the way in which our churches were to be governed, to bring them closer to the New Testament, I highlighted that fact, and rightly so, because that's what you tend to find as you are working your way through the New Testament. And part of the reason is simply the fact that um, there is safety when you have a number of godly men working together. Uh, there is mutual accountability even at that level. You're able to speak into each other's lives quite apart from speaking into the life of the congregation. There is a sharing out of responsibilities so that one person is not overwhelmed with the kind of work that has to be done and so forth. So there's a lot there that shows the wisdom of God in providing for a priority of uh, eldership in the church. And I mean, the very first body of elders were really the apostles um, when they were left behind in Jerusalem. And you can't miss the fact that there was coordination there, they was working together. And even when they were dealing with church plans, they would then send one of them or two of them to go and deal with that situation and so on. Um, and even when you, you, you had issues to deal with, like in, in Acts 15, uh, you notice again that the matter was tabled um, among a number of elders and apostles at that point, and then they worked through this together and finally gave an appropriate response. So it's in the wisdom of God that we are given uh, that uh, plurality. We also then, as you rightly pointed out, notice it with the deacons as well, at least the first appointed ones in, in the book of Acts. Again, it's a group that's meant to function together, help one another, and, and consequently serve in that way. So yes, there is the safety in, in, in numbers of qualified men. And uh, you can't miss it from First um, Timothy chapter 3 and also from Titus chapter 1, that uh, it wasn't just a person who's wearing trousers bring him in uh, or someone who's uh, got a lot of money in his bank bring him in. Um, it's rather to do with real genuine uh, spirituality seen in the person's uh, maturity in his domestic life and also he, in his teaching abilities and so on. So all we do is seek to follow the Bible and we will be safe because we are under the wisdom of God. Connor, as, as you know, at, a lot of these churches are, are looking for, and you mentioned it, qualified men. Um, 
what would you say to the to the to the pastor who maybe you know maybe only has one one guy or a couple of guys and is looking uh, to, for his church to grow, uh, but would like to have to be, be to begin adding? How how can he disciple men or spur men on to 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 want to uh, seek the office uh, of, of an elder? Yeah, well, we we've had to work through that uh, in two ways. One has been to um, remove the view that elders are almost angels, you know, absolutely perfect. Uh, everything around them is uh, squeaky clean. We, we've had to, to, to try and bring people down to reality that um, we, we, that's not what we're looking for. Because if you're looking for that, then first of all, the elders who are already there ought to be removed. And then number two, uh, you just won't have any elders to bring in because the standards will be um, superhuman. So that's one area. And then the other is to to speak in terms of spiritual growth, that uh, these are individuals who are showing genuine maturity in spiritual things. So it's not um, perfection, but maturity within the context of uh, the people of God. And then simply helping them see that it, it, the work is to do with oversight. And because it's to do with oversight, you can actually be, begin as you are being discipled. And so there could be individuals who are in charge of some small groups, some ministries or departments in the church, um, some area, within the context of the church, for instance, missions and so on. And then while they are doing that, you are also putting them on some regular reading and discussion, um, discipleship process, so that they, they, they are growing towards oversight. Uh, and not Yes, they are maturing under the ministry of the word, but they are also specifically growing in the direction of the kind of work that they will finally uh, be involved in. And those who are gifted with preaching as well, you may want to involve them in the preaching of God's word. At least give them some share while you carry uh, the Lord. Um, and perhaps just mention under that as well is the I would say. Don't be in too much of a hurry because it's it's more difficult to remove a, a person who's um, unqualified for the eldership than to put them in. Uh, it can be very messy because a person who goes in seeing it as a place of power, a place to, to just do whatever you want to do uh, with the flock of God, to remove them, they, they tend to bring down the whole structure on your head. So in that sense, I would say that if you are alone, you know what you are working towards, priority, do work towards it. But be a little like the Apostle Paul, who leaves Crete, knowing very well that he hasn't reached that point yet. And yet he doesn't want to microwave it because he realizes that he'll be leaving a lot of problems behind. 
So what instead does is to leave Titus to continue helping with the maturation process, giving him very clear qualifications that he should be looking out for. So that's what I would say. Um, it's not angels, it's real human beings with genuine struggles, but you can't miss the fact that they are um, above board, to borrow the phrase that is used in, in, um, in both First Timothy 3 and also in, in Titus 1, that they are above reproach. That's what you want to see. And then um, bring them through the church process into oversight work as well. Conrad, when I was there with you in Zambia a few years back, I was astounded at, at how your elders work together with such efficiency. And you have both paid and unpaid elders, and you have small groups that are meeting, you have various special services that are functioning on a weekly basis, and your elders seem to work with this cohesion, this efficiency that is remarkable. So talk to us a little bit about the structure of your eldership within your local church at, at Kabwata Baptist. Help us to understand what that looks like. Um, how do you guys function? How many paid pastors do you have versus unpaid? And so just walk us through how you guys approach the oversight and the care of your local church. All right. Thank you very much. Uh, first of all, when you were with us, we may have been maybe five to maybe six elders. We are now nine. Uh, so, you know, we've had, we've added an extra, uh, three or four elders. Uh, giving us a little more uh, oversight within the context of the church. And what we have done with respect to the membership of the church is that we have divided the entire membership among all the nine. So we currently have about 450 members. What it means is that each of us will have about 50 or so members to look after. And then every year we then exchange these names. It doesn't always happen every year because of what I'll speak about in terms of uh, visiting homes. Uh, the elders at the beginning of this year said, let's keep the same names because we haven't quite finished the rounds uh, in the homes. So that's what we've done with, with membership. Then with respect to the meetings of the church, both uh, the sort of weekly meetings and the ones that are scattered across the year that we call calendar activities, we also share them among the elders so that each one has some meetings that they are in charge of. And we've done the same with respect to the church um, ministries, uh, ministries to children and um, you know book ministry and media ministry and so on. Uh, different elders oversee um, different aspects there as well. And then finally, with respect to our church plants, we've got roughly uh, 17 that are currently active. And so those are under uh, different elders, generally about two um, church plants per elder. And again, the, that elder then works um, with the missionaries there um, at, at, at a, a parallel level. So the missionaries are considered elders with specific responsibility where they are. 
And so in that sense, it's not really over them, but working in conjunction with them. We currently have two who uh, are paid staff. Um, there's uh, Chipita Sibale and myself. We, we take the, um, the lion's share of the preaching ministry. Uh, I handle 24 Sundays. Chipita handles 12. So between the two of us, we handle 36 Sundays. And then the other Sundays are special meetings, invited speakers, and so on and so forth. And then we we meet every fortnight for prayer. Well, due to COVID now, the meeting is really on Zoom. But when you do meet, it's an opportunity to exchange notes. And then because it's a prayer meeting, then we pray uh, concerning all these matters. Uh, and then allow for a short time in case there are some issues that need to be discussed and decisions made and so forth. So generally, that's the way in which the, the eldership um, functions within Kabwata Baptist Church. So they, we've really shared out the Lord, and that makes it easier for all of us to manage. Conrad, I'm, I'm curious about something here. Uh, you know, I've, I've been in uh, what, what's called, quote unquote, black church circles here in the United States. Um, and primarily in those in those contexts, what we have a tendency to see is is a lot of women uh, who are in the congregation and who are running aspects of ministry and the like. I, I'm I'm curious, if, you know, and I don't know culturally if if where you are is more matriarchal or not, but 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 in but in in primarily black contexts here in in the states, a lot of the a lot of the churches are very matriarchal. And so what you have a tendency to see is you have a tendency to see a lot of women pastors, uh, women leaders uh, and the like. And so maybe speak to, if you will, what it how it helps to have to have men who are leading uh, attract other men to lead and shepherd. Could, could you speak to that just a little bit? Yes. Um, first of all, we, we do have quite a, a patriarchal uh, society. And therefore, men leadership here is, is not uh, questioned in terms of exclusive male leadership. However, there have been two winds that have been blowing. Uh, one is, from the West, that is. One is the feminist movement that's really, um, I would say, wreaking havoc in the churches because it's it's making those churches that traditionally held to uh, male leadership to begin to succumb to this sort of uh, modernized sense of church leadership. So this is the way in which you catch up with the times. And so that we're beginning to see a number of churches uh, having um, female pastors and uh, female um, leadership generally. Um, then the second is through the charismatic movement. Um, there, because of the, the view of prophecy um, being something that's current 
All you need is a strong-willed woman who is very emotional and perhaps even sincerely thinking that God is speaking through her. Before you know it, she's actually running a church, or as they call it, a ministry. And so we have a lot of prophetesses who are all over the place. Um, within the wider uh, extreme form of the charismatic movement. So there's a lot of that as well that you can't miss. Now, in the, the villages, and perhaps even in the cities, we've ended up with a lot of churches having a lot more women than men. And it would probably end up, in some cases, being as much as 70%, maybe 80%, is just women in the church. Uh, partly it's because the men uh, tend to be the ones that go further afield in order to go and bring in uh, the food and whatever else it might be, uh, working out, for instance, in the cities, in the mines, and then coming back um, and so forth over a certain period. What has tended to happen is that because there are so many women, the women have been filling a lot of subsidiary positions. And then because headquarters has opened the door for women elders, they have then just risen to the top and are now running churches. Previously, that would not have happened. But because of these same winds that I've spoken about, the ladies were literally in the waiting room about to, to uh, pounce onto the position, and that's what has really happened. Uh, so it's, it's sad because the Bible itself is fairly clear um, with respect to uh, leadership in the church. I mean, all the way from Jesus leaving 12 disciples, there were a number of women that were helping out with his ministry generally, but he he chose the 12 men that uh, provided the leadership and into their hands he left the oversight of the church conrad as a reformed baptist church there in in zambia talk to us a little bit about what a typical lord's day would look like for you guys so talk to us about your your worship service do you have special um, discipleship opportunities for groups? Do you have uh, Sunday school groups that meet? So walk us through an, uh, a typical Lord's Day and help us understand what that might look like for you guys. Okay. Now, currently we're going through COVID days. So a lot has changed, hopefully not permanently. We can't wait to get back into life as it used to be. But what has happened now is that we, we only have two services, one in the morning and one in the evening. And then in the midweek, we have um, our midweek meetings in homes. But now it's not in homes as such. It is through Zoom. But if we could just go back one year. Uh, so this time in 2020, we, we would have a meeting meetings rather, quite a number of meetings um, between 9 and 10 a.m. And those meetings would generally be all kinds of Bible studies 
and then also we we it would alternate with prayer meetings so the bible studies would be you know you'd have the, like the new members class you'd have the baptismal class you would have about four or five adult classes that normally would also include youths as well um because of the fact that we we are trying to as it were bring them up in those same uh, topics that are being handled. And then we would have um, what we would refer to as Sunday school classes, which would really be for children, um, the pre-teens, that would then be uh, having those um, meetings. Um, and then round about uh, 10.15 to 12, we would have a typical uh, worship service. Um, we would begin with the announcements, so the announcements would soon get out of the way. And then we would roughly have maybe four to five hymns across the entire service, with the last one being after the preaching of God's word. So to begin with a call to worship, which the person who's leading the worship service will take us through, we would uh, normally have a particular theme for that service. Uh, I remember last Sunday evening was penitence. That's what uh, the main um, service was about. And then we would um, also have uh, consecutive Bible reading. Uh, so we, we have a different book in the evening, another one in the morning service that we're making our way through. So that would also be somewhere in the service. Then we'd also have a pastoral prayer. So one of the elders would uh, lead the church in praying. And normally it follows immediately after the Bible reading. So it's also a response by the church to what God has said through uh, the consecutive Bible reading. And then after that would come the actual preaching, which would normally be about 45 minutes, followed finally by um, a, a closing hymn and closing prayer. So if I was to, because I've preached so often in the U.S., if I was to speak in terms of what would be um, the same, I would generally say that the, the way you order your worship services there would be more or less what we do here. If I was to say what would be different, it would be more, I think we generally have more songs to sing and we sing a lot more enthusiastically um, than a typical sort of Western church. Um, I think those would be the main uh, differences. But the the expository preaching the 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 amount of time given to the preaching would be normally the same conrad one of the wonderful joys of my visit to zambia was to see the the work of the african christian university and although it was just a budding work if you will at that point i was extremely encouraged to see what was happening there so talk to us about the work of ACU and how we could pray for you guys, how we could partner, potentially partner with you guys for that work. Just kind of walk us through how ACU started and where you guys are presently. Thank you. 
Thank you. Yes, the, the African Christian University is a project that the Reformed Baptist Churches here in Zambia began in, actually it's 10 years now. So it was 10 years last year. So it was in 2010. And, uh, but we only finally opened doors in 2015. Um, in fact, it was 2016 that we finally opened doors to students. And that was because the Zambian government was changing its um, um, the, the legal framework for private universities. They were a very new phenomenon, and they were trying to put a regulatory body on top that would then you know, look after what's happening in, in private tertiary education. So that took them forever, and we, we almost gave up. Anyway, we finally opened in uh, in 2016, and we we have four streams. We've got uh, uh, theology, we have agriculture, we have business, and we have education. So those are the the main courses that we teach, and we we've just been um, allowed, or we've just had our Master of Arts in Pastoral Theology accredited. So in May, we'll be starting uh, teaching at master's level as well, which we are very excited about. And um, um, unfortunately, our brother Vodi Bokam, who's labored hard to, to see us get to this day, just when we get the accreditation, has had to cross the ocean back to the US uh, for medical reasons. So he might miss out on the grand opening of our master's program. But hopefully, he will join us soon after that. Uh, we have, at, at the moment, we've only got about 60 students. So that is for all the programs together. Um, we have recently purchased land where we now intend to start building, putting up our actual campus. That's very exciting for us because it's a sign that we, uh, we mean business with this activity that we are involved in. I was the founding chancellor, uh, which is a, um, it's not a full-time employment kind of position. Um, and it became fairly clear to me about two to three years ago that I needed to get a lot more involved and so I stepped down. I'm now the um, director of advancement, uh, trying to push up enrollment and also push up uh, financial support for the university. And then working under Vodi in the School of Divinity. So that's currently my uh, involvement. Um, I love meeting with these young adults uh, whenever I have a course to handle and seeking to impact their lives across the week it's it's something that's really exciting for our churches and we can't wait to see what the lord will do with this university wow what's well, it's amazing to hear about your work um uh, with, with acu and and all the things that are happening in uh in that space i'm just curious as we as we kind of wrap things up here is, as we begin to get ready for the upcoming g3 national conference in october of course the theme is christ 
Uh, you believe that the Christian community, um, where you are, maybe around the world, really suffers from a low view of Christ? And if so, why do you believe people should put a priority on attending this particular conference with the theme uh, being Christ? Well, you know, we can go on on that topic until tomorrow. I mean, it's, it's, it's the heart of the Christian faith. <laughs> Uh, that's what we ought to be about. Uh, sadly, especially uh, in the last uh, 30 years or so, the, the, the emphasis on the Holy Spirit, as though that's really uh, what matters, has robbed the church of um, what ought to be the, cent the center of our attention, the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, just himself says that I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. He himself said that the scriptures all testify of him. Um, th there's a lot to, to say to us that we have impoverished ourselves by relegating really Jesus to any other business, uh, losing a sense of the, the profundity and immensity of Christology uh, so that people look at Christ as though he is the kindergarten of education, spiritually speaking, uh, that you, you begin with him, but through maturity now you leave him behind and graduate to something else. I mean, that's a disaster. And really that's what the church is suffering from. I mean, when you open the New Testament epistles, literally any page you open, they will be in Christ and with Christ and of Christ and literally everything that makes up our Christian lives, they are all drawn out of the person and work of Christ. And the, our lives ought to be built upon him. And so... Um, I, I, I honestly would like to urge um, anyone and everyone to um, to be part of a conference that's really saying, let's feed on the bread of heaven himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. We desperately need him. That's what I would say. Well, thank you, men, for joining me for this conversation today about the uh, biblical ecclesiology and the local church and church membership. Always a privilege to talk with uh, Virgil Walker, also known as Omaha, and Conrad Mbewe, also known as the African Spurgeon. Brothers, thanks for joining me for this edition of the G3 Podcast. Thank you. Thanks, Josh, for having me. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for joining us for this edition of the G3 Podcast. We want to point you to our website. That's g3men.org. There you will be able to find archives of this very podcast, as well as other important resources and articles that are published on a weekly basis. You will also find information related to our upcoming G3 National Conference. that's going to be held September the 30th through October the 2nd in Atlanta. This year's theme is Biblical Christology, and you'll want to join us for this exciting conference. You'll be able to find out information about the speakers as well as hotel properties on our website. We look forward to seeing you with us this coming fall for the conference, but also as you make plans, you'll want to make sure that you arrive on Tuesday if possible. That way you can take part in the 
pre-conference on September 29th. And you'll want to find out more details about that. We're going to be releasing that information very soon. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. You'll see those announcements as they are released over the next few days. May God bless you. Have a wonderful week. And we'll see you next week on the G3 Podcast.